Listen fast. This is a party line. The neighbor's got itchy trigger fingers. All right, here's the deal. You got 30 or so hostages on the 30th floor. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. They got missiles, automatic weapons, and enough plastic explosives to orbit Arnold Schwarzenegger. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture. This is John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Die Hard. Starring Bruce Willis. Who are you, then? Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. A monkey in a wrench. Pain in the ass. Alan Rickman. When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. Benefits of a classical education. Bonnie Bedelia. I have a request. What idiot put you in charge? You did, when you murdered my boss. Reginald Val Johnson. If you are what I think you are, then you'll know when to listen, when to shut up, and... And when to pray. And heart Buckner. You're here in a hostile takeover. You grab us for some green mail, but you didn't expect some poison pill was going to be running around in the building. Am I right? Hans. Bobby. I'm your white knight. Directed by John McTiernan. Go to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's the author of Hostage Terrorist, Terrorist Hostage. A study in duality, it's Galley in Glasgow. Eat it, Harvey. It's Devon in London. You did bring me along for my charming personality. It's Patrick in London. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house not a creature was stirring, except the four assholes coming in the rear in standard 2 by 2 cover formation. It's Matt in South Korea. Very, very, very good. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Patrick. How are we all doing? Hello and welcome to, no, um, <laughs> good. I, I, I was, yeah, you know, obviously gutted. I couldn't make event horizon, but, um, work called last minute and it was actually quite a good cause that I went for. Um, I, I don't think I explained it well, but thanks for the shout out on event horizon. Um, there's a program. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a full advertisement here because I thought it was a really excellent kind of project. It's called Prue. P-R-U. I've forgotten the bloody acronym. Um, I'll find it now. And it's a BBC Three comedy. Um, and it's this non-profit organisation, production company called Fully Focused. And they're doing really great things out in East London. Um, we were shooting there near Dartford. And they, all about equal opportunities, they kind of street cast the, uh, the, the cast, excuse me. And these people from um, giving local young people a chance to work in film and tv and to learn how to make film and television programs um so i i I think i fully understood what i was signing up for is it's kind of a charity thing uh it's not that it was unpaid or anything it's very professional and proper production but politely and i don't mean this in any criticism there was a lot of hand-holding because these people don't know what they're doing all the trainees are brand new and and it was quite nice to be able to teach people, um, p- pupil referral unit, Prue. Um, so it's, it's a BBC three comedy. It, it, I haven't seen the pilot, but apparently it did well. It got commissioned and, um, I just think it's a really great project because of the, the equal opportunities and, and the teaching young people. And I really got on board with that over the week. Um, they only booked me for the week anyway, it's cover. 
But um, yeah, keep your eyes out for it. Great. No, no, that sounds amazing, Patrick. I also quite like the way that this is a almost like a subtle way in to to finally getting onto CBBS, isn't it? You know, BBC <laughs> production as you do. I, I know, I know which artists to kiss. Now, listeners, you asked for a miracle. So I give you the Rewire <laughs> Movie Podcast review Wait. of Die Hard. So here we are. I will start with you, Patrick. We are tackling a, a golden goose of a movie. So first experiences with Die Hard. This is quite hard to... Um, I wonder if any of you are the same here. It's quite hard to recall first experiences with this film because this has been... Uh, I've just always known it, in a way. For a long time, I've always known it, which must come from my parents... They must have introduced me to it as a great film. And I, I honestly can't remember. So it must have been early teens that I saw this. And um, I've been watching yearly ever since, to be honest. Uh, I remember, funnily enough, I remember, just to go off a little bit of a tangent, I'd never seen Die Hard with a Vengeance, but my friend Johnny Young was a massive fan of it. And when we were at uni, we pulled an all-nighter to watch Die Hard 1, 2 and 3. And, uh, in the words of Matt Ridley, we'd had a few and it wasn't till about, I think it was like 4am we got to die with a vengeance. And I remember this is in, um, near Hyde Park. <laughs> and, uh, no, uh, yeah. And I just remember <laughs> die with a vengeance. Like, wow. Yeah. And that was like a really great trilogy to watch back to back, but die hard. I've always held in quite high esteem. Um, and I think generally in recent times, it's this time of year that I always think about returning to it. And it's one of the first films I think about returning to it. However, if it's on TV, I'll, I'll you better be sure I'll be watching it. Um, Devlin, what, what about yourself? Uh, very similar. Like I, it, it just, it's difficult to nail down exactly when Die Hard came into all of our lives because uh, uh, we were what, roughly between three and five when it came out at the cinema. So uh, probably by the time we were cognizant to Patrick's showing off because he's young, <laughs> <laughs> comparatively young. <laughs> um, we were, um, so yeah, it just kind of exists. I would imagine it was in TV rotation pretty heavily by the time we were even cognizant of what that was. So it's just been woven into the fabric of constant, uh, uh, TV repetition. Although I will say that, uh, again, as with most of these films, Die Hard 2 seemed to be on TV a lot more than Die Hard 1. Die Hard yes. 1 was always treated as a bit of a big deal, whereas Die Hard 2 would just be in the churn. Mm. Um, uh, it's been interesting to watch it kind of become, I think it was always regarded as a really good film that people like to watch. It's quite interesting to see its kind of canonization over the years to, uh, the, the kind of the shift from it's a very good film up to the pedestal of uh, it's an unimpeachable classic. Uh, but it's, uh, it has been, it has been with us kind of forever. Such, such a mainstay, isn't it? It's just a core memory in a way. And I guess we'll, we'll talk later about like it's, it's resonant influence throughout the rest of the genre. But, uh, how about you, Matt? Well, it's kind of like aliens. Uh, it was like a Sunday morning thing for me. Um, when my mum was cooking and my dad was at chapel, uh, that was the only time I had to watch films on my own that I wouldn't be embarrassed by nudity, swearing, extreme violence, um, and also get away with watching them. Although they were, they were all taped from telly. So my first 
uh, experience with Die Hard was taped off ITV with all of the swearing, like not all the swearing cut out, but um, I've written a little section for later where um, the, all of the, like the TV version is actually quite funny. Some of the things they replaced the swearing with, but um, yeah, that was the version I saw for years. Pan and scan, cut to ribbons. And, Did you uh, uh, pause it for the news break? Uh, there was a Die Hard continues after the news, just like Aliens, I think. Uh, and then later they had a channel, there was a Channel 5 one, but that was much later because Thornburg has the line, eat your heart out, Channel 5. And they used to use it in the, the trailer for the Channel 5 um, oh, yeah. scre- screening of Die Hard. <laughs> um, so I think this one came from my friend Grant, who had it on VHS. And uh, I think I watched some of it at his house. That's the first time I saw it, but I don't think I saw it all. Um, and I was also introduced to Predator around the same time, as far as John McTiernan goes. We had, I could talk about it more on the Predator one when we eventually do it, but there was a, a sleepover at a friend's house at primary school where we all watched Predator. Um, so yeah, th- this was one of the Sunday morning staples for me. And then gradually over the years, seeing it uncut on VHS, eventually in that widescreen version and then DVD over the years. I've never seen it at the cinema, but I'd love to see it at the Prince Charles or something like 70 that. 70mm or the Prince Charles. Oh, that sounds amazing. I've not seen it yet. I, I remember watching it, making an effort to go and see it at the Phoenix in Leicester. Because mm. it was a screening there and that was on film. You know, and it was, it is a film that I'd definitely seek out to. 70mm would be good, Dev. That sounds amazing to me. But I, this is one that I know very well. It's, it's, uh, it's a big film for me. So it's kind of intimidating talking about it, but um, something that you know, like the back of your hand, you've seen it a hundred times. So um, this is really, really interesting one to to talk about. Uh, Gally, how about you? Yeah, I'll echo pretty much uh, the same the same as everyone else. I think I'm probably more with Devlin. I, I think I saw Die Hard 2 first and then watched Die Hard. You love um, Rennie. Uh, well, <laughs> that, uh, maybe that's it. Maybe that's where it all stems from. Bless Rennie Harlan and his kind of subpar sequel but yeah it's um it's one of those mainstays as patrick says um i i kind of love the fact that every 12 months i get to see that meme where everyone says <laughs> it isn't christmas unless i see hans gruber fly off the top of the nakatomi spoilers if you haven't seen it weird listening to this though if you've never seen die on but yeah so i'm i'm totally in with um with the kind of fandom on it. I will say this, and obviously we know that I do this sometimes, and I apologize for those of you that I marginalize. We're not going to get into the, is it a Christmas movie? It's a pub chat that's gone out of, got out of hand. And now all of a sudden everyone wants to engage and be a contrarian. It's not going to happen on this, this here podcast. I'm just going to nip it in the bud. Shit. Somebody shut, somebody (laughs) shut the gas pipes off. (laughs) Burning some fingers again. (laughs) However, we have picked it for Christmas season. Well, that, that shows our stance on it, doesn't it really? It's not. (laughs) Okay. Patrick, we missed you last week with Event Horizon, though Jack and Ori's story with Matt was good. Um, or Sex and Orgies with Matt was the other title. Um, but for now, can we please have the plot summary for Die Hard? Ladies and gentlemen, it is one of the greatest years in the history of the Nakatomi Corporation and the Christmas party is in full swing on the 30th floor of Nakatomi Plaza. John McClane, a seasoned, wise-cracking New York cop, has flown over to LA for Christmas to visit his wife, Holly, and children, only to find that Holly is now going by her maiden name much to his annoyance. They quarrel, 
Things are not great for the McLeans, who haven't resolved things since July. Holly has to step away to make a speech to the troops, leaving John to make fists with his bare toes and Hans Gruber, an exceptional thief, along with his twelve disciples, invade and assume control over Nakatomi Plaza to give the greedy Nakatomi Corporation a lesson in the real use of power. They take 30 hostages in the process, everyone on the 30th floor except John. Hans wheedles out Joseph Takagi from the hostages, interrogating him for access to the computer, for Hans is interested in what is locked in the vault. $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds. Takagi is killed as the thieves get to work cracking the safe, but in the meantime, John McLean makes a pain in the ass of himself, picking off Hans's men one by one, stealing some detonators and alerting the authorities, using the unfinished Nakatomi Plaza and its environment to help him thwart them. Sergeant Al Powell, a Twinkie-eating L.A. beat cop, answers a dispatch call to check what's happening at Nakatomi and remains as radio support for John as other authorities around him fail. Hans practices his Californian accent, distracting John for a beat while backup arrives. They shoot the glass to hinder John, who makes a bloody escape as they retrieve their detonators. John, vest dirty, feet a mess, faces the possibility of failure and asks Al to tell his wife Holly he loves her, should the worst happen and apologizes, something he couldn't do at the party. Hans blows the roof. John hoses the problem in the nick of time, the lone cowboy stumbling toward Hans in a final showdown, Holly held at gunpoint. John is seemingly beat, but he has a surprise Christmas present for Hans at the death. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Very good, Patrick. That is a movie. You've already got my ticket. It's interesting not to go straight into Critics Corner, but it's really interesting to see where Die Hard was before release when you when you read some of the... Uh, some of the kind of the the publicity stuff about this silly little movie with the guy starring who stars in Moonlighting to then you know as soon as it's released this person is a superstar and the trajectory of the action genre kind of goes you know goes into a completely different direction but obviously it sounds like I'm I'm giving away my turkey and stuffing and cranberry sandwiches there so I'll keep <laughs> it to a minimum. Um, so yeah, I, I am looking forward to this one. And, and one of the things that um, I'm really looking forward to is kind of discussing a little bit of the origins of this because actually the one thing I did not know is I did not know that this was one from a book because I, you know, I don't really go into the trivia side of things, but also that this could have starred Frank Sinatra, which blows my mind because we can talk about Bruce, but Frank Sinatra at 77 is a very different movie. But I think I would have, I think I would have gone see it. If anyone hasn't seen the movies that made us episode on Netflix, uh, you should really take a look. It's quite an infuriating show in many ways because you kind of have a headache at the end of it because you're just bombarded with stuff. But this one has, I think it was the first one they ever made and it has some really great trivia in there, beginning with like Nothing Lasts Forever, which was the, the Roderick Thorpe book. And that's the Frank Sinatra connection. He was contractually obliged to, to be offered it, I think in his seventies and he had to turn it down before they could move on with other people in the McLean role. Some big names were up for it. I think Clint Eastwood was the main one. He was uh, someone who owned 
or had rights to something at some point and uh, in, in the 80s. He said he didn't get the humour. The humour didn't work for him is why Clint didn't want it. Apparently Schwarzenegger was up for it as well. That makes sense because of Predator. That's the year before and once McTiernan's on. But then McTiernan wanted to make him an everyman. And I think that's where the uh, the average Joe kind of thing came from and making McLean more vulnerable and less a super army soldier with big, uh, big muscles. I think we talked about this, uh, uh, many, many, many years ago on, on not many years ago, several years ago on a previous episode where we talked about how short the peak of the heyday of the eighties action swole up, uh, um, HGH guzzling mega stars was that, um, Stallone and, and Schwarzenegger's career peaks were relatively short, almost a blip, really a, a little period through the sort of, I guess, mid eighties to late eighties. Some was this almost like a return to earlier forms of action stars? Like the, uh, there were action films preceding this, although they were not as bombastic as this, but in terms of like the lead character being uh, a fallible everyman up against difficult circumstances that go back to some of the stuff from the sixties and seventies, do you think? Until you said fallible, I was going to say Charles Bronson's death wish, but um, fallibility is one thing that Bronson does not wear. Death, death wish is a strange one, isn't it? Cause it starts out as a, the, the first book and most of the first film is actually about a guy who's severely kind of, who's kind of mentally ill and is, is enacting a vengeance, which is going to be poisonous to him. And it was only in the later sequels that they're like, actually murdering people for vengeance is brilliant and you should do more of it. I think some of the actors regarded McLean as being a bit of a wimp and they didn't really want to do the movie. I think Burt Reynolds, James Kahn, Stallone, Schwarzenegger and Richard Gere were all names uh, that, that turned it down. And there's even a line that makes fun of Arnie at one point where McLean says they've got enough C4 to orbit Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, and although I think McLean, uh, uh, McTiernan and Arnie are still buddies, I do think they're poking fun at the, the muscle bound action hero of, of the eighties a bit. But Devlin, you're probably right. Uh, I keep saying McLean when I mean McTiernan, this is going to be an issue. Um, I, I think he's, more influenced by the movies of the past and he has a, a good knowledge of film history. So I think he's probably uh, not too bothered about the contemporary action stuff. He's, he's looking backwards. So you're probably right. Yeah. I, I, um, I wrote in my, my notes, a little heading, which was a man out of time and right for the time. And, and what I meant by that is that the film actively places him almost like fish out of water kind of stuff. He's on the plane. He's, he's uncomfortable. Then when he's in the airport, he sees uh, somebody uh, run past him and he makes the, the one of two <laughs> jabs at California. And then the second one is when the guy at the party kisses him and it's a bit <laughs> of a kind of, you know, the not gays. There's a, the scene at the airport where he talks to himself and says California uh, yeah. is interesting because throughout the movie, he's alone. And to establish a character that talks to himself is really useful um throughout the film he's uh why why didn't you do something john because then you'd be dead too asshole all that kind of stuff yeah. you can get away with because you know he's that kind of guy also he talks to himself in the mirror after the row with holly it's, i like the way he hits his head against the door frame you know and i there's there was um the writer was telling this story about 
the origin of the film. And I think like some of those casting decisions, Matt, to me, that they originally thought, those guys feel like they look too old for the part. Now that we know how, how like John McClane and Bruce Willis is in the finished article, the writer said that, um, he hadn't quite found, cause it, it, in the book to get away from nothing lasts forever, do it a bit differently. He went for a drive. He had had an argument with his wife and that was like an empty fridge box on the road. And that was saying to him, like he wish he'd told his wife he loves her. And he found the story there that McLean is about a 30 year old cop or something who wants to make amends with his wife at Christmas time. Do you think that there's a certain amount of, um, the character being representative of a, a massive air quotes, relatable man whom the world is leaving behind. Like you say, the, the case of the, of the not gaze, which is cemented three, three times at the start of the film of him reacting to attractive ladies walking past him. He gives, uh, he gives two ladies the uh-huh, kind of face. And so, um, I, I do think that like the makers of the film are always really, really smart in that they know that like, the bulk of their audience is it's like um i don't know there's uh it's um it's not really parodic but it's like it's a i think it's a knowing reference to like this idea of like what are the the the, the bulk of the audience are going to want to see um it's the same reason that i don't know like a, a top gear was always mega successful in the uk it's like kind of early middle-aged guys you know just saying what is wrong with everyone but me kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) there's a little bit of that devlin but i also think it it runs through the whole film about underdogs and i think this is where john mctiernan and the writers and uh, you know i give credit to all the all the the creatives when it comes down to the concept of the character is that he is an underdog he is the you know the, the the stack is against him and then you just look at who he's positioned against. And even like someone like Alice, who feels like a bit of an 80s stereotype, that that type of uh, successful, coke-driven... I mean, God forbid someone say that he's kind of a bit like Joel Silver. But, but you know, the idea that, he's, um, that he is not that person. And I think he says, you know, I've met people like him, or, you know, I know the type. He is not that type. And, and it, they harken back to like the Westerns and the normal Western way would be the strong silent type. But the difference is that John McClane is the strong sensitive type. We see it kind of come out every now and again. He, he's not in totally in touch with his feelings, but the key scene is when he, he kind of looks for redemption and he's speaking to Al. And then Al tells him the, his story of woe. And as men, as me trying to talk as a man, you know, you can kind of go, you know what? It's okay to open up about your feelings. And I think that's the strength of the character. It's not just a case that Bruce Willis just reminds you of someone who used to be a mechanic. It's like he, he's able to make you feel comfortable about being sensitive in a way that we haven't seen in, in this era of action film. It's a clever introduction to him, isn't it? You know, rather than he's flying economy, he's got the big goofy teddy bear. He's trying to get, you know, that's his thought of making amendments with his his daughter or his son he's getting in a limo he says he's never been in a limo before he doesn't know what he's doing it's a nice setup Mm. what's the first Mm. thing you notice about mclean when you meet him and it's that he's scared and i can't imagine arnie Mm. uh first of all i can't imagine arnie going barefoot and all that stuff Mm. later 
But like the first time we see him, he's scared of air travel. And that's a strange way to introduce your action protagonist, isn't it? You don't like flying, do you? Because you're not, I do. You want to know the secret to surviving air travel? After you get where you're going, take off your shoes and your socks. Then you walk around on the rug barefoot and make fists with your toes. Fists with your toes? <laughs> I know, I know, it sounds crazy. Trust me, I've been doing it for nine years. Yes, sir, better than a shower and a hot cup of coffee. <laughs> okay. Hans calls him an orphan of a bankrupt culture at one point. I wondered if that... Uh, led to any thoughts and what what this film perhaps says about America at the time. Uh, I didn't see too much blind patriotism here, as in some of the Arnie and Sly stuff. But a lot of like a, a clash between like yeah the um the fancy classy Europeans, <laughs> some of them. Right, <laughs> Euro trash. <laughs> We've mentioned on Fatal Attraction, and I'm sure it'll come up in multiple eighties movies. The uh, uh, you don't want to say Japanophobia. But uh, certainly an awareness. Japanic? Can we say that? Yeah, an, an awareness <laughs> of the of the um, the economic boom in, in in Japan and how there was a very real possibility that Japan may have been uh, by the conclusion of the eighties may have actually overtaken the USA as the biggest economy in the world and um, the the I guess the threat to American hegemony in that and the this film kind of I think. It just has a lot more fun with all of this kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm, although mm-hmm. it's still indulging it massively and it, it's, so that's why I think like, um, maybe just below the surface, it was at the time it was kind of poking at the, the, the unsaid kind of fears of the American male <laughs> and the, perhaps that, you know, that they, mm. they were in, in the face of the increasing uh, presence of women in the workplace was a challenge to them and, uh, the increasing, um, the way that, uh, um, society was becoming more kind of not restrictive, but I guess, um, there was a tightening of the grip of the, um, cultural and political institutions, I guess, uh, the Reagan years were characterized by a kind of hardening in, uh, uh, the, the power given to the military and the CIA and the FBI. And you have stuff like the, the abuses that that came up with. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that all mm-hmm. that stuff is, is in the film without having, without being so overt that it distracts from the fact that it's still just an enjoyable film. But that comes well, from McTiernan, yeah, because he's yeah. very, that's, that's what he wants to say in his fewer words, isn't it? He wants to make sure, I think Matt said offline that he's very anti-authoritarian and that's his through line in this film. Is showing that when we when we get the federal agencies, they're inept, they're stupid. You know, it's a good commentary on the state of affairs in the eighties. I think that's his that's his great trick in in this film and his previous film, which we'll not I'll not talk about too much because there'll be an entire episode on it. But it's just that that John McTiernan manages in Die Hard to have a kind of a political skewering. And it's not just actually, it's not just the politics and some of these major systems. The media gets, gets a, a pop at, he has a pop at too. Um, but they don't, they don't distract from the core central thesis of the movie, which is a man trying to redeem and sa- salvage his marriage at Christmas time 
and then all we also have a you know faux terrorist attack actually it's a it's a burglary you know all that kind of stuff or a heist sorry so all that kind of stuff is is woven in but it doesn't distract it's kind of like they're wrinkles that is what keeps the film fresh i think you know if it was just a standard action fair then i think the film probably doesn't it doesn't have the long lasting effect that it that it has because you can keep watching it and keep seeing those things and then when you listen to interviews with john mcturnan i mean he is i compared him to wes craven i wonder what you thought about this because he's like a deep thinker but he's somehow managed to find himself in this kind of high concept action genre and he's just elevated it that's all he's done he said well i'm just gonna put lots and lots of like theoretical stuff in it but also make it a really fun movie a bit like wes craven did with scream and then he just become like the master of action but you know unfortunately in, in a way that kind of ended up going against him in Last Action Hero. I mean, what did you think of that comparison? Because that's the one I kept thinking about was Wes Craven elevates horror and then John McTiernan elevates action. Well, that, that's an interesting comparison. What what you just said reminded me of is uh, when McTiernan said that you can make fun of the characters within your movie as long as you don't make fun of the central premise too much. And some action films uh, like play fast and loose with the with the plot um but he he keeps a solid through line going even though he makes fun of these authority figures that was something that ebert had an an issue with particularly the Dwayne t robinson character who he despised and said it it ruined ruined the movie but uh, i find that that comedic you know making fun of the of authority i find that's one of the most interesting things about die hard just going back to what dev said there were a couple of bruce willis quotes about the character he said that he's an ordinary guy in extraordinary circumstances which is the, the thing that everyone always says in their interviews but he also said that the character wasn't unfeeling or unemotional and he cared about his life and he cared about his wife so i think that was Another layer and, and something that McTiernan brought and, and Willis understood. Well, I think even, even then, you know, cause I, you read interviews about Bruce Willis and obviously, it, you know, just to chuck my theory in, once him and Demi split up, he was never the same. Um, he, he never really was the same, uh, fun, happy go lucky Bruce. But I think she jokes about that on the roast. Have you ever seen the she, comedy? I have seen roast? the, I, I've seen the roast, which does feed into my thesis, but I had, I'd always believed that their breakup was the end of the, and probably the hair as well didn't help, but like the Bruce Willis era is separated by their separation, but he's always been difficult on set. And I think he was difficult on this, despite this being his first movie. But I think McTiernan managed to kind of just harness that kind of charm, that anti-authoritarian slant that Bruce has kind of got to. And I just think as well, he the the, the reason why the character works for me is that he doesn't ever go out and seek danger. He's actually thinking the way that I would think, which is, well, I need to call for help. And it's only because help is so inept that he's like, well, I'm going to have to make a stand here and I'm going to have to go on the attack. But for most of the movie, he's he's on the defense, isn't he? He's, he's running, which again, we wouldn't have seen in this era of action film, I don't think. Going into that, into the writing, along with McTurn and, and what he does for the action star, I think um, that marries up really well with that sentiment about him having fun with it is the writing. And even like Bruce Willis bringing his own lines to the character with the writer and 
just to figure out things about it, it seemed like a really good collaboration in that way to flesh out the character and to have the it feels like the same guy throughout the whole thing there's nothing that McLean does that surprises you you feel like this is what he would do in, in every step really um which is I, th- I think what way why it's quite an an attractive feat this and an everlasting character in John McLean for, for this film certainly if not four and five do you think um the the sort of comedic flippancy that he sometimes brings out I think Matt you kind of nailed it when you said that um you can make fun of certain characters but never mock the film because you break the kind of spell of it and I think um uh one thing that a lot of people tend to bring up about the sort of the ongoing Marvel comicsization of action movie stuff is that now it's fine to just constantly banter throughout what should be like life or death circumstances. And you have an entire generation now of like Ryan Reynolds-esque movie stars who are in action situations and they're still dropping punchlines throughout. And I think there's a... So funny. I was just thinking of Red Notice when I was saying that. Right. And he has a line in it about a phone and he's like... You had a phone the whole time? Yeah. Oh, that's really going to damage the film now. Like with the film, and it's like, what the fuck? It undermines it, doesn't it? It's too much. It becomes a, it becomes a nothing. Like too parody, too strange. Yeah. When, when like, um, uh, I think, uh, again, while we were just chatting, um, we were talking about that, Matt, you were watching the, um, the, the shoot the glass shootout. And it got really loud in your flat. And I think Gally, you just said that Jesus Christ, because that's, um, both the, the, that's, uh, uh, John McLean's reaction to it is just like overwhelmingly, this is genuinely too much to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's knowing how to balance when to, when to have fun with it and when to realize that the, the, the situation that the characters find themselves in should be considered serious by the characters. People should react emotionally. The shoot the glass sequence was interesting. Uh, McTiernan said that he wanted to do that scene without anyone really being killed. It didn't entirely work out because as the guy who gets his kneecaps shot out, that was always (laughs) cut on ITV. I never saw that until um, I got the VHS. That's that's a harsh stunt going into the It is. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's, the, he's the only person who dies in the sequence. Um, but there's a lot of shooting and it's almost a parody by McTiernan of, of these kinds of films. They're, they're shooting at nothing. It's, it's yeah. like jerking off essentially. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's what he was getting at. And he said that everyone that followed him and the, the copycat stuff that followed, including the, the, the sequel, the direct sequel, uh, didn't understand what he was doing as far as uh, parodying action films. Mm. And we've we've talked about that many many times, haven't we? About just misunderstanding the patient zero of uh, of these types of movies. You know, I, I look at Die Hard in a in a similar vein to something you know more recent, but like Blair Witch Project. You know, it comes out and it completely creates like this whole new subgenre within a genre, and all the imitators and the copycats just don't seem to understand the formula that was actually quite clear in the blueprints. Of the, of the original and, and Die Hard had plenty and you know we've discussed it about the writing but it then becomes you know Jan de Bont the cinematographer goes on and makes Die Hard on a bus which is speed and that becomes the turn of phrase uh for shorthand for what type of movie it is but they they constantly not to suggest that speed's a bad movie but like Under Siege Under Siege 2 colon dark territory <laughs> yeah. Die Hard on a train you know the 
Mm-hmm. They they somehow just whether it's in the character or uh, it's normally in the execution of the directing. You know, you talk about tonal shifts. Devlin, here's a scene that doesn't happen in a in a Marvel film currently. It's when John McClane is essentially saying, "Al, I'm about to go in," and he doesn't he doesn't think he's going to make it. And it's when he says, "You know, tell my tell my wife." that I've told her a hundred times that I love her, but I've never said I'm sorry. He is basically saying, oh, you know, we know where that goes now because there's been millions of sequels. But if you're watching it for the first time, that is that character saying, I'm not probably coming back from this. Listen, man, I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. I want you to do something for me. Um, <clears throat> I want you to find my wife. Don't ask me how, by then you'll know how. Uh, I want you to tell her something. I want you to tell her that um, I told her it took me a while to figure out uh, what a jerk I've been but um, that that when things started to pan out for her I should have been more supportive and uh Tell her that um, that she is the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. And I want you to tell her that, Alan. I want you to tell her that uh, John said that he was sorry. I actually disagree. I think you would find it in a Marvel film, but that's, I think I have a bit, I appreciate them a lot more than you do, and I've seen a lot more of them than you have, and I know that. But I get what you mean, and I get your sentiment, and it always seems that the copycats, I don't know what you think, but it always seems to be, let's do it bigger, and that's our way of doing it, and they misunderstand the subtleties as the big gestures, like Matt said about the shooting of the glass, that would become this obnoxious, like, huge action sequence that doesn't understand the how to progress the plot. Because we're progressing the plot there by damaging his feet. There's a whole point of Hans Gruber's, that, you know, like, uh, intelligence and, and going that way. And you could easily see it in the wrong hands being just a bit John Woo to be polite, you know, like sparks flying everywhere and slow-mo dives everywhere and doing it that way rather than cavalcade of just, you know, nightmare situation with John, uh, John McClane and figuring out how the fuck he's going to get out of there. Yeah, that's true. I guess John Woo would go for a kind of balletic excess. <laughs> and some doves, which, which does doves. have its own, its own charms. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. When, 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 he, when the... he shoots the glass, the glass turns into doves that falls <laughs> down. <laughs> uh, I got the stopwatch out for the first time. Um, I noted down a couple of things early on that I think might not answer the question, but, uh, it's it sort of, shows how well this one's set up i think we're eight minutes in and we know about john we know about holly and um we know almost everything we need to know in order to enjoy the story and one thing i keep coming back to with mctiernan is how thoughtful he is it's the stuff that he shows you in order for you to enjoy the film uh he doesn't want you to be lost uh i think we're 15 minutes in and we know that he's separated we know that Holly's cashing his checks. We know that they've got kids. 
uh, and then it's 23 minutes in when the terrorists or uh, thieves, robbers, we should say, start their gunfire and searching the offices. So 23 minutes into this film that is, what, two hours, 12 minutes? 12. We, we've got the entire premise set up and uh, we're we're ready to enjoy it. And I think a lot of the copycats fail to do that. But it's cool that you said speed because that's almost the exception isn't it? Cause that's such a great, it's yeah. probably after Die Hard for me. It's, it's one of the best action films ever. Well, it's it, Matt. I'd written it in my notes as well. Cause I also got the stopwatch out and I could not believe that it was 23 minutes. And then I wrote down, it's all in act one. Like the key to Die Hard success is act one. Like, and, and this is where the imitators do fall foul. And we've discussed it in, in previous action movies where you kind of want to give the audience or the rule of thumb normally is give the audience a big action sequence to start the movie. Then they, then you've bought yourself 30, 40 minutes before you have to do another one because otherwise they'll just be like, ah, oh, this action movie has got no action. What McTiernan's idea is a bit like, you know, if anyone's ever been to Alton Towers, it's not rubbish. It's great. But. Alton Towers, when there isn't a queue, just doesn't have the same charm. Like the idea of not queuing to go on the Oblivion and just going straight on the ride, though fun, it's fleeting. The idea is in the anticipation, and that is what Die Hard does so well. Everything start, everything gets set up, and the action then is like you are at the point where you like need it, and then you get it, as opposed to thinking that you need it straight away. And I don't know, you know, it's all by design. I, I'd written down as well, like, cause I'd read a few contemporary reviews and it talked about like, it's lightning in a bottle. And I just thought, well, I think it, that's slightly disparaging because I don't think it's lightning in a bottle. This isn't like a happy accident. Like this is all by design and you have to start looking at like the filmmakers and, and all the creative heads and how you get this like magical kind of piece of cinema that has now become lauded. I mean, maybe I'm over, uh, over egg and the custard, but no, I, I don't think, think you there are. Is, there's something in it. It's, it's everything is meticulously designed. The one thing that I really noticed this time watching it was the camera movement. Like I was just in love with how the camera just kind of, you said it, Matt orientation. Like I know where everything is and that's just, that's just design. That isn't by accident. Like I'm not lost in this building. At all. I think it's telling as well, Gally, that John McTernan, he turned down the script, what, three times? Hmm. Yeah, Cause it wasn't right for him and he wasn't what, what he was looking for was, uh, to inject some joy into yeah. it because he was worried that a film about terrorists would be dark and miserable. And he saw it as an opportunity to have some fun. So, um, everything from that's through doing the research for this, I finally understood why Ode to Joy was chosen it, it's throughout his commentary about putting joy into the film wherever he can and that's where the humor comes from and that's where that choice of, of music originated too it was quite telling when he said that yeah nobody enjoys terrorists and it's and it's true it's like when was the last time you could think of a a, a film about a terrorist hostage situation would be the sort of thing that you would want to re-watch every year you might want to watch it once or twice because it's exciting or compelling or whatever but I mean, people like robbers, you know, they don't mind a heist. That's okay. A heist is fun. A heist is well constructed and you can like, Oh, look, it's clever. And you've got the, the you've got your little tools and stuff. And, but he, even with that, like that, that fun, there's a little elements. I think maternity said it. There's, um, one of the robbers when they're 
when the SWAT team are coming in and he positions himself behind the candy like stall, <laughs> yeah. and he sees, he sees a little crunch bar that he wants. He's like, you don't you don't get that. You know, it, it's more macho in other action films and those little nuanced yeah. pieces, like how they develop the character, the guy behind the reception. Like I got fifty dollars running on these assholes. Huey, and, Huey Lewis, it's fifty bucks. Excuse me. I I laugh every single time. Come on, it's a I got great little bit. About these assholes. It's a I'm great like, little. Oh, it's brilliant. Like it's yeah. smart. It's it, it's a, it's smart writing, and it's it's quite amazing to think that the writing was you know alongside shooting. They they fired the uh, first writer, um, Seb Jeb Stewart. Yeah, he's and the guy with the refrigerator box you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't remember his name earlier. Sorry, Jeb Stewart. And then Stephen D'Souza uh, came in, who had a really good bond with Bruce Willis, which is good. I think that it, it really helped. I liked what he said uh, in making of documentary uh, or comments. It might have been films that made us about. Um, I think it was Bruce's agent said he's fed up with all these rewrites, but he actually wasn't. He enjoyed the collaboration. That's where you get the Roy Rogers stuff and all of that, which is great. And it's just, it's quite smart writing. And it's remarkable to think that Sousa was writing this, you know, like a day ahead of what they were shooting. They were finding mm. out how to do it, finding out how to get the, the most amazing thing for me was finding out how they worked out how to get uh, Rickman and Willis in the same room together to face mm. up with Gruber and McLean, more importantly, the characters. Like the, working that out sounded, it was, was amazing just in the canteen. Well, that came from, uh, yeah, Rickman was uh, doing do an, you American do an American accent, accent? In, in the canteen. Yeah. And that's how it, I how do, it I do Californian. <laughs> 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 I can't remember if it was, um, if I, I'm going to tell a little uh, secondhand uh, anecdote, but I think it was Luke Selway, friend of the show, who told me a story about um, Alan Rickman on set of Harry Potter. I don't know if, was it you, Patrick, or was it Luke? It might have been Luke. It'd be Luke on Half the Prince he worked on. Yeah, and he was saying that he was was getting in position for lighting and someone new on set uh, said hello to him. And was like, oh, hi, hi. And I think he called him Alan. May have called him Alan. And, uh, And Alan Rickman said, and I should know you. Why? And that was the <laughs> <a> story. <laughs> it was just the idea. I mean, obviously that seems like quite dickheadish, but in a way I forgive him because, um, there is just a, I mean, what is amazing, just this is Bruce Willis's first film, but this is also Alan Rittman's, you know, a, a seasoned the- theatrical performer and the, the beauty first in his film, performance. Man. Well, the beauty in his performance is that unlike in Robin Hood, where he does everything. He does very little in this. It's all very subtle. His inflections are very subtle. And, and it's, there's like a kind of charm to him as a villain, despite the fact that we see him, one of the first things we see him do is, is kill Mr. Takagi. Brutally. And, Mr. Uh, and yet, Takagi. Takagi. But, but I also see that he's a bit of a, he's a bit insecure about his own status. You know, the, the, the suit line is the line when he's like, uh, <laughs> Arafat shops there. Mm, I've yeah. myself. I have true myself. Did you see that they originally wanted Event Horizon Zone Sam Neill for that role? He very mm, nearly uh, Sam, got it. Sam, Sam Neill could do it, but it would be hammy. 
I think. Yeah. There's a, there's a, definitely, there's a line of, of, yeah, it would be Ham Neil, bless him. Um, but yeah, I just, <laughs> the, the other bit as well is the one time we see him lose control. <laughs> Sorry, not... Ham Neil's a great joke. <laughs> <laughs> he, I, I think they saw him in the theatre that Rickman, he was doing dangerous liaisons. Which confused me because I looked for the film and he wasn't in the film. He was in the, no. in London doing the play. And they said, somebody said he has so many colors to him. I think it was McTiernan. And he made this sort of seamless transition to, from the, the stage to the screen. And it's amazing that it's his first film. I think, I think John Silver really pushed for him as well, didn't he? Um, and, and believed in him. And I really like something Rickman said about, um, the character he saw a lot of similarities between him and McLean, uh, Gruber and McLean, excuse me. He said there was definitely a mutual respect between them and ironic detached statement traded for ironic detached statement. And in a weird way, they were cut from the same cloth. And mm. I really like that. Their interactions on the radio sh- shows all of that. And like, um, Mr. Cowboy and all that <laughs> things. It's, um, it's good. The key bit there, Patrick, is the one time he loses control is when Holly calls him out and says, you're just nothing but a thief. And he's like, I am an exceptional thief. thief. <laughs> yeah. It's like that line cut him deep. And again, that goes to the core of the character. He, is that yeah. He was close to calling off Christmas at that point, wasn't he? Uh, <laughs> he very much was. Yeah. It, it made me think of the sheriff a bit because I think I said he was a bit effeminate in, in Robin Hood and he is a little bit here too. They said he had a limp wrist when he was holding the, the gun and they had to sort of strengthen his wrist a bit. And there's a, a bit where he slides into the room and is like, slightly heeled oh, yeah. shoes oh, and he fires that, a warning though. shot it's a, it's a cool shot but he look, he does look slightly camp when he does it and and there's another bit where he puts out a cigarette and he does like a kind of a a, da- a dancey it's almost like he's a tap dancer or something so but, it's, a, it's a sailor it's a sailor uh twist isn't it the old oh summit on the ship <laughs> exactly but he, what he does is he's kind of like a bond villain in a way like bond villains don't need to be physically intimidating and strong because he, first of all he has carl who's a great henchman who does all that stuff but um yeah he it, it kind of did play like a, a a really great bond film and i wondered if he would have made a good bond film maybe in the pierce era or the, or the timothy dalton he certainly era. would have and gruber's you can see that he's very comfortable in rickman's performance gruber's very comfortable in the situation and you feel the control um and he's one step ahead and the it, little bits from Rickman, um, in his performance, like in the room, he said he probably brought his theatrical background with him, but he's like said to Tim McTinnon, oh, there's a buffet there from the Christmas party. I'm just going to sit and nibble at that while I address the room. Oh, that's and the best goes, line in the movie. Joining us for the rest of his life. It's a love. It's a wonderful little moment that, um, I think Rickman brings to it. And of course, his first film, man. Like what an insane performance this is and what he brings to the role. Uh, don't, I don't always believe that the German accent's there, but it doesn't really matter. And I got at, the impression at the that end, he was supposed to, to drift, right? Like that, um, I don't, he, possibly. I don't know whether, whether, he, I don't know. I didn't know whether they were trying to target him as being too specifically from one place because the, the way they talk about the, um, He's Euro trash when is he, what they call. Yeah, when he gets on the on the phone and he's talking about releasing his brothers and sisters from the new oh, Provo brilliant. army of Ireland. I've read Time magazine. <laughs> Asian yeah. Dawn. I, yeah, like I, I like the idea that it's like uh, it's a man with no fealty and no kind of mm. uh, uh, attachments to anything other than 
you know that him and his his merry band of of Euro trash thieves. This is Hans Gruber. I assume you realize the futility of direct action against me. We have no wish for further loss of life. Well, uh, what is it you do wish for, Mr. Gruber? I have comrades in arms around the world languishing in prison. The American State Department enjoys rattling its saber for its own ends. Now I can rattle it for me. The following people are to be released from their captors. In Northern Ireland, the seven members of the new Provo Front. In Canada, the five imprisoned leaders of Liberté de Québec. In Sri Lanka, the nine members of the Asian Dawn. What the fuck? I read about them in Time magazine. When these revolutionary brothers and sisters are free, the hostages in this building will be taken to the roof and they will accompany us in helicopters to the Los Angeles International Airport where they will be given further instructions. You have two hours to comply. But what are they, but what are they after in the end? Material wealth, you know. We are in 1988 and that is, you know, again, the kind of counterpoint to John, but also it brings in, and, and this is where I did read some, I, I actually found it very, very interesting, some like feminist theories about how Holly is positioned and the relationship. And I just thought all of that stuff just made, gave the film just way more depth. I mean, Matt, you talked about it before and though that first 20 minutes, we totally understand. It doesn't matter whether or not we are sided with John or Holly, or who's right or who's wrong. We just understand the thing that's come between them. She, she's called upon very early to talk to the troops, you know, and that's uh, a What idiot put you position. in charge? What idiot put you in charge? And she's the one thinking about the pregnant woman, the people needing to get to the toilet, the thing that the man doesn't think about. He's just greedy, like, you know, he's not thinking about welfare, and she's the... She really doesn't... Really good job. Not much screen time, like you said. She doesn't get her kind of uh, power within the story across by aping a man, like you say. You know, it's not like um, that tends to be the, uh, you know, the girl boss thing of like, we can do it just as well as the men. And you would generally just gender switch the the actor, but then keep the a lot of the actions the same. Yeah, the traits would remain the same, wouldn't they? But she's she's got different qualities and those are the qualities that set her apart. All the characters are giving quite a bit like of time and and effort and 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 love really. Like Argyle, Powell, Holly, even Ellis gets uh gets written, you know, actually written rather than throw away um uh, throw away character. It's a real ensemble. And again, watching it with a kind of a, a slightly more critical eye or as good a critical eye as I've got, um, I really did notice that. And you're right, Patrick. And, you know, all these like little side characters that normally would just be functional. Like, okay, your function is to do this so the hero can get on to do that. So when we say, you know, Bruce Willis and, and Alan Rittman are the stars of the film, but actually everyone plays their part uh and 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 that's that's comes down to john mctiernan again kind of helming it and keeping it all together i i wrote that he was like the great composer partly because of all the ode to joy stuff but he is like playing the playing the tune and getting everyone to kind of play their part in this big orchestra of a movie that's perfectly said because he he looks at film like music and there was some stuff he talked about moving camera and how uh his editor on uh Red October, he had to sack him because he wouldn't cut anything that that had a moving camera. He was waiting for the camera to stop before he cut. 
and uh, he, he was pushing things forward in in terms of this European style. Um, but like the, from what you're just saying, uh, I think the it had something to do with Bruce Willis being on Moonlighting that they brought literally other Moonlighting. In. He was literally Moonlighting, and they had to pad the film out with other characters but what what's great is that they gave them little arcs like al powell has a, a great arc um ellis has, you know has a comeuppance and so does um i mean Ar- argyle you know helps out but even like T- tagaki has like an interesting it, it's very clever writing because we 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 round out who Takagi is at the beginning because of hans sounding him out which is very clever to give him a, a backstory in very to give, efficient to give him way. a backstory that that makes you care, where it's like that you know he was he was born in Japan, he moved to the uh, to the USA very young. He was interned during the Second World War, which happened to the, virtually the entire Japanese population of, uh, especially California, was notorious for hundreds of thousands of Japanese people were imprisoned. And then, yeah, and then, you know, business school. And father of five. Yeah. Well, and Devlin, it's, it's dual purposed as well because it reflects on Hans, who's trying to shortcut all of those achievements by just robbing 680 million of Barabons. You know, that again, Mm. it's, you know, we can keep talking about the writing because it is, I think it's, it's great. And the thing that I, I thought about the most is that this movie, without me even notice, like without realizing for all these years has taught me how to watch movies. Like if, if this is about as good a film school as you're going to get is watching Die Hard. You know, mm. it might not be every film shouldn't have like set up and payoff because if it did, then it would become awfully predictable. But if you're going to do set up and payoff, um, kind of rhythms and structures within your story, then we just watch Die Hard because everything goes full circle. You know, the, the socks, the shoes going off. Little feet terrorists, you know, they're, they're played in like little moments of jokes, but then it all kind of comes full circle. Some of it a little bit contrived, you know, Al at the end shooting Carl. How did he get that gun out the the building under that little sheet? How did he get down from being hung up like Houdini or something? I don't know how he did that. It's the moment in Jaws, isn't it? Like, how did that shark keep that canister in its mouth? The ambulance in the back of the van. It's true. If, if you're worried about that stuff at that point, then the movie's failed. But I, it, it never bothered me at all. And the set, the setup payoff as well, Gally. There was um, on, onto that writer Jeff Stewart as well. Just one scene that really perfectly encompasses that is when they're blowing the top of the building and he he jumps off with a hose pipe. It's a uh, you know, he saved the hostages. Yeah, he's done it. He's done it. So, like payoff. Oh shit. Now he needs to escape because it's going to blow up. Fuck. How is he going to do that? He escapes. Oh yeah, he's done it. Oh shit. He can't get through the window. Oh fuck me. He's got a gun. That's great. Gets through the window. And then the, the hose pipe falling and dragging him out. It's all that up, down, like he, he called it good news, bad news, didn't he? He said the good news is this, bad news is that. But the, the good news, bad news, like set up payoff throughout the whole film is like, you know, even at the end, bad news i've got two bullets left and then we get the good news in a in the most remarkable way and it's fucking brilliant we're even in the um uh the the back and forth when you finally get uh mclean and gruber in the same room and it's like uh uh, uh hans has hidden his gun down there or he's left his gun on the thing yeah and he's mm. like and he's sort of like, <laughs> we need to it's it's we're gonna go to the roof it's this way and he steps and you it goes back to that split diopter shot and mm. then he's no 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 we're going this way and then handing him the gun and then real like the um the, the uh clay 
He gives him these, and he looks up. And also, it doesn't say Bill; it says William. So he's smart enough to see that the name is William, and but he doesn't say William Clay; he says Bill Clay. Yeah, to use a handgun, Bill. I spent a weekend at a combat ranch. You know that game with the guns that shoot red paint? Probably seems kind of stupid to you. Time for the real thing, Bill. All you gotta do is pull the trigger. Come on. Thirty-three stockwerk. Kommt sofort. Put down the gun and give me my detonators. Well, well, well. Hans. Put it down now. It's pretty tricky with that accent. You gotta be on fucking TV with that accent. What do you want with the detonators, Hans? I already used all the explosives. Or did I? I'm going to count to three. Yeah. Like you did with Takagi. Oops. No bullets. Fucking stupid, Hans. It's one of those things where it's like everyone is at the top of their game. Everyone's, and, and you said collaboration. And I think having, you know, we've all worked on sets before and we've worked on fractious ones and it doesn't happen all the time. And actually a lot of the time we hear about like productions that have, you know, faced adversity and somehow something magical has come out of it. It does feel like this one minus the writer room adversity, everyone kind of bought into the vision. And and I guess one of the other reasons for that is that McTiernan had just made Predator with Joel Silver. Joel Silver being Joel Silver, you know, if you don't know who he is, then you know one of the most powerful producers in the eighties. And I think he 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 trusted McTiernan, you know, emphatically. So there isn't that kind of studio interference of mm, I don't really not sure about this, not sure about that. And it kind of all comes together. And those little moments, you know. The other one, you know, Patrick, you said about the terrorist that grabs a chocolate bar. I was just thinking, what's this Asian terrorist doing with the Germans? But in a way, like, it's kind of cool that they've, they've, they've provided a little bit of, you know, diversity amongst this terrorist group. Well, like, they're well, not who's all, the guy, who's the hacker? The, the hacker's same. American. Yeah, Theo. Yeah. yeah it's, it's quite yeah, a diverse bunch, but, um, that, that actor is Al Lung, I think he's called, and he's in, uh, he's the guy who electrocutes Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon as well so that was like the year before so he turned up in a few of these things and i think there's either a documentary or a book or both called henchman the al lung story oh cool so uh, yeah if you're interested in in that guy that eats the candy bar yeah (laughs) now i think he's a henchman in little ninjas as well i think he was just that go-to guy but i look i love the fact as well that he doesn't do any you know it's so easy Easily could have been a kung fu fight or something. Yeah, you know, how easy would it have been to be like, well, we have just this Asian wound henchman. them. <laughs> yes, just wound them indeed. <laughs> There's another character, Matt Theo, rounded out. You know, like giving a proper arc and an in- intrigue to him because I don't know. You you get him straight away that he's this cocky 
hungry, greedy like guy. Carl has a great arc. Carl I mean, with his brother. Yeah. Perfect. Loves his brother. Yeah, Loves his brother. Yeah. Fucking so good. Uh, and you see the little antagonism between them when, uh, when, when the brother's trying to <laughs> get the, um, the, the, yeah. the telephone cables and he's trying to be really meticulous with it. And then he just comes in with the chainsaw and hacks through all of the, all of the, the I, I like that. That was an example of McTiernan as well. Like it, it's not really clear what they're doing, but because we have John on the phone, um, yeah. and he's, t- he's talking to Argyle yes. at the time. Yeah. And then yeah. it, it's, it's a visual way of, uh, establishing all those things we find out within a minute we find out that they're brothers uh the kind of antagonistic nature of their relationship but that it's playful but loving and then um we we understand that cutting um through those cords is 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 um making it the spam in a can again for for galley they're the uh, people trapped in this situation that's that they're gonna to have to escape. The other thing that that really grabbed me was just the orientation. I would go back to it, but the cinematography in this, like this film, I was watching it last night. It still looks great. Like it's not just because it's a 4K conversion. Like it just looks phenomenal. Like the outside of um, smoking in airports and generally uh, doing things that you can't do anymore because of law. Like I don't know. Like there's a lot of 80s movies that feel like they've got the trappings of an 80s movie, whereas Die Hard feels as fresh now as it would have done in 1988. Um, I don't know what you thought. I mean, maybe, okay, some of the some of the Euro clothing, but then, you know, it has come full circle. Yeah, but it's not shoulder pads and everything, is it? It's it's sleek. I think it's the, it's like you said, the fluidity of the look of it. It's, it's the same thing as when you go back and watch Terminator 2 and you think, fucking hell, this is still like super yeah. impressive. There are certain landmark films that just would just... You don't want to say it's like, uh, I'm sure if you had like an entire week and a bunch of seminars with experts on various lighting setups and, and camera experts and sound mixing experts as well, that you could break all of this mm. down. But th- there's just a, um, just a technical proficiency that really does set it apart. If you look at the sort of other films that were coming out in the late eighties, uh, what kind of, in, in the tier below Verhoeven this, in a way, way, isn't it? Verhoeven and the Beverly, yeah. Beverly Hills Cops. Mm. Yeah, but yeah. in Beverly Hills Cop, there's no there's no lens flares that are, that almost feel like they were purposely done. Like there's a lens, the, the bit where um, the vault opens, that is a magical moment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he captures it, and the lighting in it when when the doors open and you see Rickman, the wind's blowing his hair. In a strange way, I am somehow positioned to be like, oh, I'm really glad that Hans and his team got it open. <laughs> with the moving camera that the, the editor like didn't want to mess with, you know, like uh, he, he was doing this stuff with moving camera, him, him and Jan de Bont. But then also, um, lens flares were considered a mistake at the time. They'd mm, say, yeah. you can't, you can't have a lens flare, but they used it. And it's like, you can't have a jump cut, but you can. It just has a different effect on an audience. And, and I, I didn't realize that this stuff wasn't really happening then. Cutting two moving shots together using lens flares as a as a way of telling a story. Um, and th- there was one other thing he mentioned about. I keep coming back to this idea that he's a considerate director, and that's that's why I love him so much. He that there's one shot that kind of summed up what he tried to do, and it's when there's a a chain of um, airport carts when we first meet Argyle and it moves across the frame and it rests on the John McClane sign. Argyle is holding 
the John McClane sign. And McTiernan in his interviews talks a lot about, first of all, shots that are in the same key. He thinks of film as music. So um, if two shots are in the same key, they cut together and, and that works, regardless of what you believe a rule of filmmaking to be. But in that instance, it was just leading the audience's eye. He wants the audience to look at this specific thing at this specific time. And that was one one shot that I, I thought he did uh, intentionally and, and terrifically well and thoughtfully. On set, mate, you're often with crowd, with, with extras, um, in, in my experience recent, in recent years, you're asked to sometimes have a person, like, walking the camera to motivate the camera to get to, like, introduce the character or to introduce the, the close up and things like that. And yeah, that's a good example of it there. It's weird that you say motivated because he also used the phrase unmotivated camera moves, which you'll see a lot. Yeah. And I, I absolutely love, like if you, when the vault is opening, the camera is booming down and I think kind of tilt, tilting and looking up at hands. And that, that move isn't motivated by the character moving. It's motivated by uh, emotion and him and Yandabon yeah. worked on, on that a lot. So that's something else that's, that's aged particularly well and, and is very clever. David, I'm surprised Yanderbunk um, was okay at this point, having had half his head ripped off on Raw. <laughs> well, I mean, if I, I guess um, there's a, there's a, a an argument to be made that a lot of like really great films can be made by people who have been like battle hardened to an extent. Like, if, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of uh, filmmakers that excel in a certain thing because they had a really rigorous training in another thing. Like we always talk about how. Um, uh, uh, George Romero was, was so proficient as a director because he, he came up through, uh, industrial films, which is like, uh, getting shots that tell a story very efficiently, very cheaply, very quickly. And that, that set him up for his career on that. So someone like Yanderbunt having spent a year getting his fucking skull ripped open by actual <laughs> full-size lions in Tippy Hedron's house would have, <laughs> like there's not much you could do beyond that that is going to phase yander bunt so i guess oh my God. Uh, it, it, that's possibly why he's so well suited to doing something like this i mean he, he doesn't seem like the kind of cinematographer that um uh would sit behind a monitor and watch mm. somebody else do his lighting setups for him i would imagine that he's probably quite pick it up and go and and, and is involved in you know, running around on set, which helps to bring a, a, that kinetic energy to it that keeps this thing moving as well as it does. Oh, and another good sequence that is probably worth mentioning is, as far as the cinematography is the, uh, the helicopter stuff leading into what Patrick oh. was talking about uh, before he jumps off the, the blow the roof thing. Um, so there were nine camera crews and there were 24 cameras. Right. And they were getting three shots each, I think. And, and, uh, so the helicopters just did this sweep through the city, all, all practically, of course, in, in 1988. And, uh, there was something interesting on the commentary that made me like McTiernan more, if that was possible. He said that he lost his nerve because he had the helicopter coming up over the crowd of hostages. And this was quite soon after the Twilight Zone movie oh, geez, yeah. tragedy mm -hmm. where Vic Morrow and two kids were killed. And uh, John Landis had the whole lawsuit and everything. And he thought, oh, what have I got myself into here? So I think they did a couple of takes and then he realized that it was too dangerous and he, uh, that they altered, altered the shot, but they managed to get all, all of that in the space of half an hour. I think Jan de Bon said. It, they were given a two, two hour window, weren't they? Because hmm. the neighbors and the office were all kicking off and the city allowed them two hours. And after, I think they were, 
pushing to be shut down when the helicopters were flying through low on the ground anyway. Mm. And they did it in 40 minutes, that sequence. Like, apart from the, the miniature, the helicopter blowing up, which was, uh, yeah, a really cool little practical Amazing. effect as well. Boss film. Like, the practicality yeah. of this film is fucking unreal. Even, even though it's shot against the blue screen and Rickman falling, in the practical fall, 40 looks feet. Looks great, doesn't it? It looks insane. Right, how yeah. Especially when you compare it to the, um, the unfortunate death of Connell Cochran in, in Robocop, which is obviously Robocop is also <laughs> incredible, but the very, very, very long arms. <laughs> the long arms. <laughs> <laughs> he does the shot again in Last Action Hero though, doesn't he? With the, is it Arnie? Yeah, he does it the, with Arnie when he's falling the on the elevator. elevator. Yeah. Mm. yeah. There's also yeah. a terrible one in Under Siege 2, Colon Dark Territory, where uh, Albert yeah. Hammond Jr. falls from a helicopter. <laughs> what, what was his <laughs> name, that budget, guy? Budget Elliot Gould. Uh, uh, budget <laughs> Elliot Gould <laughs> falls out of a helicopter, yeah. yeah. I'll, uh, I'll correct you, Devlin. It's Ronnie Cox who falls out of the window and Rover. Ah, the- you're absolutely right. I'm sorry. It's not Colonel Cochran. Jeez. Connell Cochran gets his comeuppance in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. <laughs> or does he? He just turns into a big diamond and explodes. <laughs> he does turn into a diamond. Oh, I need to watch that film again. <laughs> Can I talk about uh, one other character that sometimes might not get spoken of as much as Hans and and John McClane? The Nakatomi Tower, who hey. is is for me the MVP of Die Hard. I, you know, you mentioned before about the writer um, talking about trying to blend Tower and Inferno, um, the the original writer of the book. Um, and yeah, just the way that all of that uh, technical camera work that we were talking about is deployed in order for us to totally never get lost in the space. Um, I think James Cameron's very, very good at this. But how many action movies have we seen, including sometimes in The Rock, um, and actually, if you think back to last week when we were talking about Event Horizon, not quite understanding where Ham Neal was at any one time. <laughs> oh no, it's caught on. I love Jurassic Park. Yeah. Sorry, Ham Neal. <laughs> I know. Very, very sorry, Ham Neal. Um, but, oh, stop but, it. But getting, getting lost in the space and that doesn't happen. And, and McTiernan deploys these little visual cues, you know, the naked girl poster, such a, such an, easy way yeah. to be like ah i know where he is so you're mm. watching it and you think well how does john mcclain know like he's getting around this building for someone who's never been in this building quite well but mm. we've seen him circumnavigate all the areas and it's the same with the floors you know we don't have constant shots of, of signs that say floor number 30 floor number mm. 31 but the way that the production design separates them like we know that um the the model where he takes takagi is above where the party is. And we know that floor 30, because when John starts and he's looking for Holly, her surname yeah. is Gennaro. There's like dual purpose everywhere. It's like, oh, that's on floor 30. The only people in the building. John McTiernan said something cool about uh, Jackson Degovia. I think his name is the, the production designer. He said when they met, they didn't just talk about furniture and sets and things like that. They They actually talked about story and character, which from the way he was describing it, it sounds like it's very un- unusual and and kind of a blessing to have have a designer that cares that much about story and not just the kind of aesthetics of you know what a chair looks like or something there was an influence of something here an influence of um like designer and architect frank lloyd wright as well and like in the Nakatomi was that connected Plaza. to the model um or, yeah or the, the there was something to do with the water as well you know where john goes to the party and he's looking around and that's great as well because it's a lot of his pov so we're experiencing that kind of strange party 
through his eyes. And I think that was connected to uh, the waterfall. Uh, I think Frank it was a, also like Frank Lloyd Wright's connection to Japanese kind of culture as well. And mm. that commentary on Americanizing Takagi and Nakatomi coming here and Americanizing themselves in Nakatomi Plaza. But also like with, with the Plaza Galley, um, which is Fox Plaza Century City, the writer and the stunt coordinator would walk around because it was an unfinished building at the time in real life anyway. And using that unfinished environment, they'd write sequences like the action sequence. When he, when um, McLean kills the first guy, they saw the stairs. Oh, let's use the stairs. Let's use the, the building works. Let's use the, the trolley there. Let's land in there and wheel away. And I think that was a really clever use of the environment and to, right to the what the building can give you to the strengths of what what, what it can yeah. give you is, is a very clever and look look at the results it worked it's, it's the really um it's the great thing about limitations being able to harness if you can do unlimited things oftentimes you will end up with potentially weaker situations because the human imagination if you leave it to its completely own devices will will often either default to cliche things or or will maybe struggle to make things very specific but by having limitations imposed on you and then using those as a jump off point because you wouldn't be limited to just what's in the building if you could also construct sets but like you say it's it's going to inform like these set pieces have to happen here because this is what is connecting area A to area B. So that's where, that's where you end up as characters. And it grounds the action. I mean, okay, this film is not realistic. It's heightened, clearly. But there are a couple of moments where it goes from probably like heroism to superheroism. But those moments, a bit like what I was saying with Jaws and the gas tank in the mouth at the end, you accept them, or I certainly do as an audience member, because everything else has been pretty grounded the fights feel like real fights to the death um you know going down the stairs breaking his neck yeah that would kill him in a normal film they get up and they carry on duking it out but in this film he's landed his neck is broken he's done but then his brother uh, survives you know, the hanging well you this is it though there's a couple of moments when mclean when mclean falls and grabs onto the vent the movie vent which is always just yeah. big enough for a human the stretch that's that's the stretch, but you kind of just go, well, okay, I'll give you that one. Doesn't happen all the time. Strangely, as the series goes on, McLean becomes more archetypal superhero than he does grounded everyman blue collar boy. Isn't it weird um, that he goes from uh, being scared of air travel to actually fighting a, a, a jet fighter plane <laughs> in the in the fourth one, yeah. or whatever it is. That's escalation within the film, which is, I guess, why you buy uh, uh, a slightly outlandish thing happening an hour, an hour and twenty minutes into a film where you've you've gradually taken us away from the kind of you know the more realistic, and then yeah, an hour and fifteen, an hour and twenty minutes in, you buy that he would drop from one vent but catch the next but i guess um once you've escalated us to that point and you've taken the the, the people on that uh, on that journey that's probably a, a sequel issue which is that we've now accepted this character doing these things because we have we have we remember it we remember him swinging from a fire hose through a window so maybe that's why all the films got increasingly mental is that mm. you can't, you can't press <laughs> one upsmanship. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, in the second one, he's already uh, surviving being exploded out of the, um, 
escape chair from the fighter jet, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And McTiernan talked about it a bit. He, he said that he just, even when it came to uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance as well, he said that he, because that's when CG was sort of creeping in, I think, around. Well, he's surfing a truck in there. Which, for the world's yeah. moment where, where you go, hmm, oh But it's still, it's, it's grounded for the most part, but I think you're right, Gally, that there are just certain spikes that that you kind of I'm happy to go along with in in both of those movies actually. I I it doesn't bother me in any normal action film but when you when you try and when you're trying to pinpoint the elevated action and why this film still hits for many many people and I don't think it hits with everyone and I do have a couple of bits which we'll get into but but I think for the majority most people who watch this accept that it's like no this is pretty pretty bloody good like there's i i i struggled to find somebody that was like oh a bit boring isn't it a bit dull not very good <laughs> what's well, like, well fly by for me oh yeah 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 absolutely and and you're invested this is the key bit is you're invested in his relationship with his wife what he needs to do and then i think mcturning kind of buys a little bit of credit in the bank for some of the more outlandish caricatures so the two that i mean they're fun but I think they, they are the ones that, that do blip on my radar are Alice, who is a little bit too into Coke. Maybe, maybe I don't know if he's just his problem has only just recently come on board, but I would have thought Mr. Takagi would have probably got rid of him. Do you, do you think that when he, they bring him a Coke, do you think he asked for some Coke? And <laughs> does anyone have any Coke? Do, I think does... that is, I, I think that is McTiernan and D'Souza very much, um, kind of, joking the joke it's uh, it's never spelled out is it but i the older you get you sort of see it when you're a kid you don't realize but and especially because he gives them a look and hands is like yes (laughs) 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 but but him and and i i'm not to say i agree with ebert because i did listen to that review where he just wouldn't shut up about how it was like oh it ruined it it absolutely ruined but i do think that paul gleason is a touch a touch OTT. I would have pro- I would have preferred it if he was incompetent, but not mm. disruptive. A, a, a bit like then you would have pulled through the whole underdog theme and the FBI be the real big bad, which they are, but he is such a disruptor because, I, I mean, it's funny though, his lines, one of them is like, probably just a stockbroker who has had a bad day. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah. my God. Like, <laughs> yeah, every, that's where the humor point. comes from. He's so incompetent and he's just dismissive of the whole thing. And that like, he wasn't even going to tell them about, tell the feds about John McClane. And Al Powell has to tell them. He's like, oh, by the way, there's a guy in there. He's killing the terrorists. And, and he's like, so zip, zip your mouth, you know, don't, don't talk about him because he's probably a bar, the, the guy that fell out of the window is probably a bartender that got depressed. Wasn't he? <laughs> he's yeah. ridiculous. I don't know. What, but... you, what, what did you, what did you think? I mean, is it, is it, does it play well enough or is it, do you accept it as like part of the tapestry of the movie or does it slightly bump up? No, it fine, plays uh, fine for me. I like, uh, I think, um, I think the investment in it in the film is so, pure and i'm so into it i especially like with gleason with uh robinson i don't really notice that being a problem apart from just a commentary on an inept police officer you know, powell is the authority we we trust him leave him because he's human and he has a human side and a human relationship with um with McLean and, and, you know, like Vel Johnson, we haven't really spoken about, but he's wonderful in this. It's almost worth having, uh, Dwayne Robinson there to have, uh, Al, Al Powell kind of 
battle against him. Yeah. And, and I don't mind that, their dialogue and that their, yeah. even their relationship and then his relationship with McLean. And in quite a few episodes recently, we've spoken about African American, uh, dialogue and representation on screen. And then you look at Powell, and like this fantastic character. And it's mm. written well and he delivers it well and he brings across personality and performance and it, it really works. And I think, um, maybe that's why I'm not really bothered about Robinson, uh, and, and any of that. Something had to get you off the street. What's the matter? You don't think jockeying papers across a desk is a noble effort for a cop? No. I had an accident. Drive, I can see why. What'd you do? Run over your cat, flip the car. I shot a kid. He was 13 years old. Oh, it was dark. I couldn't see him. He had a ray gun look real enough. You know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. I just couldn't bring myself to draw my gun on anybody again. Sorry, man. Hey, man. How could you know? Which is weird, though, because uh, uh, one thing that I'd completely forgot was that, as you were saying, everyone does have an arc, and Powell does have an arc. And uh, What I'd forgot is that his arc is, I shot a child on on duty, and that my arc is... I finally learned to kill again. Yeah. <laughs> I'd completely <laughs> forgot. I yeah. mean, at this, at this particular juncture in history, for that to be the, um, the, the, the arc for a cop of all mm. things. Was I'm glad he's a black cop of, in this because that would have been extremely, right? Uh, I mean, it's, played it's, differently uh, with a white guy. It was probably the one thing that I thought, oh, this, yeah, but, this, but the payoff the really works, right? We, we want him yeah, to I mean, kill Carl at that point. Now, can, can you exactly. imagine a Steyer org just uh, annihilating that yeah. entire crowd? That would be a very different ending yeah. to this film, wouldn't it? It's a triumphant ending, and it's the it's the it's the Christmas element of like the uh, the kind of the wish fulfillment miracles can happen. Everyone, what? you know, everyone has that like <laughs> moment of redemption, and it kind of play yeah, yeah it all yeah. falls into the end. It's it's not just learning to kill again, Dev. It's about you know, I know realizing it's you know being comfortable with who it's he is again redemptive violence worry. though it's it's true like maybe there's something wrong with me like this and gremlins just extreme violence and uh christmas it just all goes together when when you're on when you're on this kind of thing there's um there's a really interesting push pull of like conservatism like the sort of the the mainstream strain of american conservatism uh, an indulgence of it and then a rejection of it and i think the film is smart enough to not really be um, so beholden to it, like a lot of the other films of its era, especially the kind of lesser ones, the Seagal kind of tier of stuff where it is very much like USA, let's go smash everything. Yeah. And then, uh, it undercuts it. But there, but it, like I said, there is an inherent slight conservatism to the, the origins of the character of John McLean, which is a guy kisses him on the cheek and he's like, what the fuck? Mm. He's, he's, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but again, it's, it's not indulged. It's it's in there and it's slyly subverted and it's all just played with uh, again like that kind of it's mirthful like it's all quite playful 
and and thus you never really have to get too sucked into these things what it is 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 not the point of the film so you could watch it and be like ah american conservatism has re-established its order mclean has got his wife back she'll probably quit his job and go back with him that's the right thing to do you know in someone's head that could possibly be subconsciously what they're thinking but really whilst you're watching it you are not thinking about "Mm, looks like the order has been re-established very good (laughs) guns are good you know those are not the thoughts that are going through your mind they're certainly not the ones going through my mind and and the the other the other kind of piece to that puzzle is you know, the the systems are the things that, that McTurnan has been skewing. You know, one of the things that uh, that, that really comes to the, the forefront is the FBI, who, unfortunately for John, um, it ended up kind of going going against him in the future when he has a little pop at the old federal government. But but the FBI are absolute buffoons, but they, they're, they're played with such fun and joy in a way. It's kind of like playful as you said you know yeah. Johnson, this is, uh, right, Johnson. <laughs> no relation not my brother <laughs> no relation <Yeah. laughs> oh, and then he, he calls him again he goes uh, this is this is uh, Johnson he goes no the other one that was, my, <laughs> that was my my biggest laugh of the whole screen in this week was was the no the other one well, that that's uh, the Goonies guy it's, it's Robert Darby um, he's, he's one of the Fratellis. One of the Italians. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Real yeah. cracker. Huh? <laughs> the opera singer. But I, love, I love how Bochner Ellis in this. I, 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 I think you said you had a bit of a problem with him, Gally. Um, I quite like him in this. He is one of the heightened characters, I would say. He was trying things on set. Um, that, uh, apparently McTurney went up to him and was like, you're gonna, you're gonna do it like that? No, no, rain it back, rain it back. But he carried on because he was thinking, you know, I'm coked up or whatever. And then McTinnan softened when he saw Joel Silver and I think another producer of the writer <laughs> at the, at the, watching the playback, like laughing their heads off. Yeah. But I love it. it was his hands. Booby. <laughs> I'm your white knight. It's fucking great. He, he's, I, I like him. You know, we were talking about escalation though. He's probably the first very heightened character we meet. He's the silliest character we meet earliest in the film. So maybe it's just that he kind of sets up a bit of a, he's one of the things that kind of jars the tone up and out of realism and into movie land. All right, John, listen. They want you to tell them what the detonators are. They know people are listening. They want the detonators or they're going to kill me. John, didn't you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Hey, John, I think you could get with the program a little, huh? The police are here now. It's their problem. Now, tell these guys where the detonators are so no one else gets hurt. You know, I'm putting my life on the line for you, pal. Ellis, listen to me very carefully. John. Shut up, Ellis. Just shut your mouth. Put Hans back on the line. Hans, this shithead does not know what kind of man you are, but I do. Listen. Good. Then you'll give us what we want and save your friend's life. You're not part of this equation. It's time you realized that. Hey, what am I, a method actor, Hans? (laughs) Babe, put away the gun. This is radio, not television. (laughs) Hans, this asshole is not my friend. I just met him tonight. I don't know him. Jesus Christ, Ellis, these people are going to kill you. Tell them you don't know me. John, how can you say that after all these years, huh? I can't imagine him being very good. Like he he plays as like a car salesman, not someone who who works in mergers and acquisitions. But then I guess that's the point because Holly's taken over from him, and he's like already being left behind. You know, because we talked about it in Fatal Fatal Attractions, how Glenn Close was this you know, super high powered business lady, and then she got kind of reduced to like 
psycho mm. Uh, mm. and literally went full tilt. At least in this movie, it, despite all the conservatism, Holly remains consistent, I guess, is the biggest compliment I can give. But I know that other people could watch it and feel it be quite reductive. But but I suppose like it, the, the, the payoff there is that he dies, you know, from his own stupid actions and he's not listening to Holly for one. And he gets killed as, as a result of it, and that's that's male ignorance um, getting his comeuppance. So I'd, I'd be interested in reading the series, but that's the way I see it. I do like the way he plays out on the radio, and like, the way he puts his <laughs> thumbs up and he's smiling yeah. at hands. And it's quite nice because you don't really see hands um, uh, reactions all the time. You just see his one way. It's like. Uh, I've got a method actor. This is radio, not TV. Put the gun away. <laughs> <laughs> Great. He's oh, the way he comes in. Sprecancy talk, huh? I can get you what you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fucking good. Uh, to be fair to Alice, he doesn't give up Holly, does he? You know, so he, no. he knows who John is. Yeah. But yeah. to give him one little bit, because mm. obviously he's clearly crushing on her, he doesn't give her up. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, his wife's in the foyer. I mentioned the thing about the strain of conservatism, but I'm not sure I quite, I don't know. It's, it's valid, but it's, it, you have to read into it. That's not within the text of the film. I don't no, think, I think no. it's, um, but it's also very valid to take that as like the, the zeitgeist and, you know, that he does, uh, um, at the end of the film when they're reunited in the, in the car. But I think you probably have to project outwards to say that from there she is going to, somehow yeah. uh, uh withdraw herself from from the business world and go back to family mm. life and find her place because that doesn't really happen within the film like you say she actually elevates and she becomes more of a leader within the within the group at work i suppose at the end of the film he's it's so caught up in reconciliation with each other and like in each other's arms and they want to go away I read into that that he will he now will have that talk with her that he could say to Powell on the radio that he couldn't say to her at the beginning of the film and he hits his head on the door frame and he's angry at himself because he knows what he needs to and wants to say because she said it you know she she started the conversation she's the grown up she says I miss you like the children miss you I can yeah, make yeah. a spare room she's planned ahead and all of that and she has that maturity in their relationship and in a person anyway but I leave that film. I think Tim is smarter than that. He said his uh, apology, which is why Powell says he's a good man, because he said it mm. to him and he's opened up and he's cried down the radio. Mm. When they're in the car there, that for me, he will tell her. I know he yeah, will, yeah. because that's where their, their relationship and that's where John's going. I don't need to be, you know, handheld and told that that's what he's going to do. Like, And these people say that. It, it, the film's smarter than that. Mm. And we sh- mm-hmm. that's, how I, that's how I read it. Yeah, you just yeah, need a no. Danny Trejo to just say, you know, the women. I'm sorry. Do things now. <laughs> <laughs> have, have we talked enough about how good Bruce Willis is in this film? Because especially that, that scene with Powell is like uh, an amazing scene. And yeah. I think this is where Matt said earlier that, or was it you going to, that a lot of actors didn't really want the role because of that weakness and that, uh, Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Thank you very much. You yeah. could imagine John McClane at that point had just finished listening to Simply Reds holding back the years. You know, that is where he's at in that moment. <laughs> Specific. It's a great scene. And there was one other thing about the coverage that um, McTiernan tried to do when 
which again is thoughtful. Um, McLean and Powell are talking a lot on the CB radios. And if you look at the way that they're kind of facing in the frame, he wanted it to be as if they were actually in the same room talking mm, to, to one cool. another and to give them a connection. So one is usually looking left, one is looking right as if they're, they're actually together on the line. They haven't crossed they, the line, which is not right. And, and there's also a, a an idea that maybe the true love story here is, is John and, and Powell. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's the coming together of those two, two characters, um, rather than just him and his wife. But I, I enjoyed what you said there, Patrick. I thought we don't have to have our hand held. Um, it, it resolves in a very beautiful way. And yeah. I, I think he's going to have that, that chat with her too. The conversation from July or whatever they say that, that they never continued. Um, that I think it will happen. Well, there's a, there's a lovely meme going around at the minute, Matt, of, um, you know, find me someone who looks at you the way that Al Powell looks at the plane <laughs> at the end. And it's a, yeah. and that is, that's currently yeah. my favorite meme because it really is like, come here, come here, brother. <laughs> Somebody was moaning about how, how did he know it was him? Like, first of all, you, you, you oh, would, you would know. And second of all, it says Powell on his badge. So he, that's how. Oh, there's, there's haters or hate, Matt. How can you, how can you have a problem with that? This film has been thought through, believe it or not. You, you know, you can, you can find, um, a few plot holes, but um, there's one, one that I hate now that I wish I could unsee. Oh, go on then. I don't know if I should tell. I mean, it's already out there on the Netflix stuff. So he's wearing like Hobbit feet when he jumps uh, off, yeah. off the roof because there's like exposed bolts and and things I he's never, wearing these I, yeah, sort of fake same. skin shoes but now i see it every time and i, I wish i didn't i i i watched it this morning having learnt that yesterday matt and i didn't, didn't you just went breeze by yeah it's that and good. i think that's the that's what we've said earlier like the film is that good and that involving and entertaining and we're, the characters are so fucking good. All that shit, don't care about it. It doesn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought you were going to go talking about the the actual vault itself, which is probably the only bit where a bit of sense would be like, well, if the if it literally will open on the electricity being cut, then that's not particularly safe safe. No, no, he's already done all the work in order to get to that stage. He's done mm. the other six and the other, the other bit as well is that Theo is um, put put forward as like this great hacker, but he's just literally going through a list of Japanese names as the passwords. If you notice, it's like oh, he does he does translation the guy's the guy's name uh, Hijo equals castle or something. Yeah, and and the the ambulance in the truck is a big one because that that's what happens when you start making a film with only thirty pages of a, a script. That's one of the things that can happen. But you know, it's. You know, I forgive it again. I'm, you can see when the, when the, when Gruber's gang walk out, you can see that there's not enough room for an ambulance, but you know, you, now I just have to go along with it. And against Netflix again, ruining it. I used to have a bigger problem with him surviving the hanging, but now I just don't care because it's, it's the payoff for Powell. Well, also if, uh, if a director directly attacks his own movie, like Last Action Hero does, um, I do believe Danny calls out how the hell could Carl come back when he's, when he's been hanging out there. He's been <laughs> shut down. So you, yeah. you can't yeah. then keep having a go at John McTurnan if he's already addressed the elephant in the room. That's what mm-hmm. I'll say. And I'd rather have that ending and, and have that question mark over that moment than, than not have it at all. So this is probably the first time, I, even with aliens, we had, we picked a couple of bits, but this is a real loving. But to be honest with you, it's just, it's the strength of the movie. I mean, from my perspective anyway, um, I do find, 
very little that I could really throw any shade at this movie. Um, and that's not just because I'm like some sort of fanboy. Like you can, I just watched it the other night and it still holds up. And I watch this every 12 months. And yeah, you know, this is what every filmmaker wants, don't they? They want a movie that can get pulled, pulled round every 12 months. You know, that's why everyone wants a Christmas movie. Home Alone is a similar, similar thing. Everyone will watch it every year. But this one really does hold up because I did watch um, Jingle All the Way last night um, just for your your and the first twenty minutes are a little bit dull. All I'll say, is the first 20 minutes. <laughs> I'll just say you've got to you've got to you've got to get through those twenty minutes where you're like, oh man, this is really cool. Arnie sells beds for a living. I'm not sure I can hang on this premise. Dash it, dash it, pets a big and comic cubadana pizza. He's also a big fan of the 1996 Olympics. Embroidered sweatshirt. <laughs> Expensive. My, my grandma loves that film. Oh, maybe we'll do it next year. Maybe we'll do it next year. But this is not a Jingle All The Way uh, discussion. Paul White, a.k.a. Big Show from the WWF. Brilliant. I'd like to know your favourite scenes of this film, actually. I think it's the I think it's the back and forth on the radio um, when Hans is kind of goating McLean. I think that's like the, the central reason why I love the movie. It's just... Strong villain, strong hero. And I kind of love the skewering of like, you know, Americana, like you, you're just a vulgar cowboy. And, and lo and behold, that, uh, actually Hans is just a, a cheap Euro trash thief. I love the back and forth of the radio. It's quite a simple scene, but that's my favorite. Uh, mine is the, the mistaken identity, Bill Clay stuff where they're actually yeah, that's, that's face mine. to face. Um, that was the first thing they shot with Rickman. And when he jumps down, he did his knee in and he was injured for the, the entire film. <laughs> the first, oh, first nice. shot, he, he had tore something, I think. But there's something... I think they also watched the playback, didn't they? And they thought he looked a bit too wimpish to be a bad guy, Rickman. And they, they were mm. like thinking, rethinking his casting. But of course, so I think it, Silver was like, no, 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 stick with him. So he's like, he, he's a, a robber playing a terrorist, playing a, Bill Clay, it, it gets a bit meta, and but he's also a, a Brit playing an American, so it's all kind of it, it's it's very interesting, and and a way of getting them face to face, which had to happen for that cat and mouse to the the payoff wouldn't be what it eventually is if if you don't have that scene between them, and they're trying to one up each other. He gives him the gun with no bullet in, and then. Uh, you know, just in the nick of time, the, the, the backup shows up and he, he, he escapes. But, uh, yeah, that would be the, the scene for me, I think. Dublin. Um, further to that, I don't know, a couple of little moments. Um, the absolutely exhausted, uh, conversation that Willis has with, um, uh, Al Powell when he's before the kind of the, the big, big third act explosion kind of picks up and mm-hmm. where he's kind of, vaguely believes that perhaps he's managed to find a a place to just hole up and wait for this whole thing to blow over and then he has to drag himself back into action um terry gilliam's favorite scene was always the uh picking the glass out of the feet he said that was what inspired him to to say that he would be able to pull off 12 monkeys he said it's not Mm. the it's not the um it's not the fast talking stuff that he liked it was that kind of watching a man you know like just in extreme emotional and physical torment, but trying mm. to talk his way through it is, is, is pretty great. Also the introduction of the two FBI guys, because it's funnier than it has any right to be. <laughs> and they don't, they don't overuse them, which is great. 
Johnson and yeah. Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Johnson and Johnson also, uh, hair products, uh, are available yeah. and oils. And things. <laughs> uh, is it, is it yours too, Patrick? Uh, the McLean and Gruber face to face. I remember, I do, I said earlier, I don't really remember the first time I ever watched it. It's just always been there, but I do distinctly remember an emotion of thinking how smart and how shocked I was that he, he went into, uh, duping McLean with the accent yeah. and like, oh, and the tension and the kind of like, whoa, this is so cool. Like, is he, what's going to happen here? You know, what mm. is going to happen? I've no idea where the film's going at that point because they're facing off and he's taken away from the gun, but he's doing, it's very, very good. Um, yeah, I, lo- I love that scene. Oh, I heard another weird theory there. You know, when he gives him the cigarettes uh, and he says, do you smoke? Uh, somebody dreamt up this thing. I don't buy into it really, but they said that the German cigarettes are much stronger. So when, when he takes a drag on the cigarette, he would have in theory noticed that that cigarette was stronger than an American cigarette. And that was one of the things that clued him in, but I'm not sure I buy into it, but it's a, li- a little bit of a, a trivia thing. Oh, well, there you go. I, I will add one more, which is basically any, any time that we're with the, uh, the receptionist Texan, cause I just every, <laughs> I got kinks in this services they installed it. <laughs> He's the personality. Yeah. He has to have that charisma to get rid of people if they interfere and it, it, Works. God, he is, it, he is so much fun. So much I went fun. to a screening of Die Hard, like a, a Christmas special thing in Leicester years ago by a little, like, local, uh, I suppose blogger type company called Midlands Movies. Um, this, and, uh, he, he did, he did these, like, secret cinema-esque, like, little screenings. I made a big effort, dressed up and little props on your tables. It was really cool. Hmm. I don't know whether he's done any since. And, um, he managed to get him, forgive me, I forget the actor's name. Uh, to do a little video intro to Die Hard. And he was saying in, from like LA just sent a video and it was really cool. Like, the guy at reception. Nice guy. Yeah. Wow. Cool. It was awesome. Oh. Yeah. Hip to be square. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 right. Well, um, we shall, we shall go around the table and do our summaries. Uh, Devlin, I'll start with you. Do you recommend Die Hard? Might be a silly question. Uh, and what are your final thoughts? Uh, yes, go watch Die Hard. No notes. Patrick? <laughs> Devlin, Devlin, no relation. Um, yeah, it, it's a hard, like, in recommending this, is there anyone left to recommend this to apart from like a new generation, uh, of teens up and coming? And Matt, you, I always like it when you say like, with this film pass the test of time with the new generation of audience? Yes, I firmly believe it will because it's one of the greatest action films of all time. And I fucking love it. Gally. Oh, well, we are keeping it brief, aren't we? Um, this brief. movie, yeah, this movie <laughs> will kill you with entertainment. That, that is my summary. I just, it's so much fun. And, and the litmus test for me is I watch it every 12 months. And that's, you know, I don't watch all of my favorite movies every 12 months. I really don't um, because, you know, familiarity can sometimes breed contempt. Um, but this, absolutely not. Like, it's not just because it's like, oh, well, it's, it's Christmas time. It's time to put Die Hard on. It's like, no, I look forward to watching Die Hard. And in a way, I always have to watch like a really crappy action film after just to kind of make sure 
that I don't, you know, forget <laughs> how good it is. Yeah. So this yeah. year I watched Die Hard with Danielle, who also loves it the other night in preparation for the podcast. And then I watched Hard to Kill. I thought you watched Free Willy. Oh no, I watched Free Willy, but that's not an action film. Not a great, well, apart from Michael Madsen getting drunk and then trying to be a parent. But, um, no, I watched Hard to Kill with Danielle last night and, um, and we, we were both like, yeah, just, just not quite as good as Die Hard. I was like, well, probably a little less than that, but you know, though. So yeah, and this is absolute, uh, strong, strong, strong recommendation. And, you know, once, once you've watched it and you've, you've been captured by its, its joyous action fair, then, uh, then you'll keep going back. Um, you know, please John McTiernan and someone give him, give him 10, 10 million and he'll make another film. God bless him. Um, what, what about you, Matt? I've got a little bit of car wax left. I'll try not to be too brief, but not too long. Um, I, this one's number six in my top 10. Um, oh, the greatest films ever. So I, I think it's, it's level pegging somewhere around with those films from my childhood with aliens and predator and as my most watched of all time, I think. And it really means the world to me. This one it is uh, a friend. It's, uh, I find it infinitely quotable and, uh, I watch it once a year, just like you, Gally. Say, so I might watch it twice this year. I watched it once in the lead up to this and I might watch it again closer to Christmas. Um, whenever I'm in a lift, I do the weird double jointed thumb thing that John McClane does. If you don't pretend to be John McClane when you're in a lift, then <laughs> who are you? Um, it, it's a 10 out of 10 for me. Um, I'm going to try and write something about John McTiernan for the blog because I've, got some extra car wax for that, but I won't drone on about it here. Yeah. Um, I think it's a film that's worthy of like a frame by frame dissection. If you're interested in how films are made, it really is not just action films, any, any films. It's really the, the Bible for that stuff. Um, I think it's a film that puts you at ease. Uh, it's a film that wants you to enjoy it. it and McTiernan cares if you're comfortable and he cares if you understand. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's probably my favorite action film. I think speed might be up there. Um, Yander Bont taking everything he learned and, yeah, and yeah, double, and, double dip in there, uh, on, on Yam. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, obviously taking Triple. what he learned. Watch Raw on YouTube, everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but you know, at its heart, it's a human story. It's about people. It's about emotions and regrets and loyalty and friendship and all these strong themes. Um, it's kind of a buddy cop movie of sorts. I enjoy all of that. Um, and you mentioned Wes Craven before and how, you know, these things are kind of undermined. Like horror is not thought of as being as good as some other genres and, and sometimes action films fall into that too. So that's maybe where McTiernan and, and Craven are sort of connected. Um, yeah, it's, it's my favorite Christmas movie. I think it beats Gremlins just in my book. Um, but yeah, um, it, it's a film that sort of unites. I think people can watch it, um, at this time of year and uh, everyone in your family is going to enjoy it on, on some level. I think, I think even my Nana knew who Bruce Willis was like because of this film, you know, it's, it's just uh, ubiquitous, isn't it? So uh, yeah, get a, get a roaring fire going and a mulled wine and a nice aged brie. And, uh, yeah, and enjoy it with your significant other or, or whoever you're with this, this holiday season. 
Uh, yeah, that's I'm out of car wax. I'm I'm done. Okay, well, I'll just make sure I check that second coat, Biff. That's all I'll say. <laughs> good, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, um, team, where can our listeners, if they haven't already got a copy, uh, where can they find Die Hard? I've only got Virgin Media. And this week, just this week, the last few days, it's come on Disney Plus. Ah, good. Yes. Uh, I think I think uh, Die Hard Two and With a Vengeance. I think they're on Disney Plus as well. Cool. But, um, yeah, just this week, which is good timing. Does that mean that no one can ever watch Die Hard ever again unless you've got it? You have to rent Disney? it. It's a, it's, it's available as a rental on Amazon Prime, yeah, usual. Yeah. Rent, rent and buy digitally, but it's no longer going to be, if, although I would imagine it will be on television. Probably this is definitely a film, though, you'd recommend you buy and own and cherish. Oh, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know if there's a kind of, uh, is there a, any kind of physical media version of this, which is like exemplary, is there an exceptional Blu-ray to it? I would ne- I wouldn't have thought so. Really, it got ported over. Like the commentary is particularly good, but the the extra features have been the same since the DVD days. But the Blu-ray right. transfer is good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not spectacular. But it, it always had a, a few decent things on it. The McTiernan commentary would be my highlight. In America, you can you can find it on IMDb TV, which is a new one. I think Whoa. that's available through um, oh. Prime. Uh, I think you can get it through Prime. Another Pe- one? <laughs> <laughs> Peacock and Roku are the other two in America, but yeah. Okay. Peacock will be coming to Sky very soon. Ah. Never heard of it. It's NBC. NBC in the in the US. Don't worry, Patrick. Next week there'll be uh, another one. They, they keep growing. <laughs> Java. 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 Voodoo. Africa. <laughs> Mine's unleaded. <laughs> well, that was part one of our, of our double bill of Christmas movies Aww. this year. Unfortunately, Patrick will not be able to make part two. He's in Florida enjoying his life. Um, not forever though. He's just on holiday. Who wants to spend Christmas in a tropical climate? The, the, the McAllisters. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Thank you. I wasn't dissing your uh, holiday. Yeah. So, so for those of you that uh, didn't hear me in Event Horizon, if you want to do your homework, we are, we are going into National Lampoon's territory, Christmas vacation. Um, I can't I've do the Ham Neal's six degrees of Ken Bacon because I don't think there is one from Die Hard. Bacon, Ham. Chevy Chase. Yeah. Bacon, Ham. Hams. <laughs> ham Neal. <laughs> ham Neal. Yeah. Okay. We can get there. It's for six steps. I could probably, give me a second and I'll get there. Anyway. Um, so we will be doing, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation next. So if you want to watch that ahead of the episode, please do. If not, just do what you normally do, which is never watch the film, but listen to the episode. It's, it's, it's a magical way of enjoying movies. Devlin, would you, would you like to tell, uh, our listeners about our merch? Because it is Christmas and everyone has got a spare penny or two. Well, why not buy a t-shirt from us? Well, exactly. We've got to keep the lights on. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, as Matt mentioned, uh, we have always got plenty of stuff over at rewindmoviecast.com, including hopefully an essay from Matt himself about the, uh, the main man, John McTiernan. Uh, on rewindmoviecast.com, you will see a tab for shop that will take you to our T-Mill store. That's devlindoesdrawing.tmill.com. There are t-shirts, posters, art prints, stickers, all sorts. I've just added a new t-shirt, not to the rewind section, but if I'm going to flog my own merch, 
Uh, I've just put up an entire series of t-shirts featuring Jet from Gladiators. All right, Alan Partridge. That's a thing that I spent my time doing. <laughs> Idea for t-shirt. Jet from Gladiators on... Uh, you know, modern, powerful women like Jet from Gladiators. <laughs> so if you want Jet on a t-shirt, or indeed the Rewind Movie, Cast, uh, Rewind Movie Podcast logo on a t-shirt, you can go get that. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Uh, just to make sure that everyone really does engage with Matt's uh, blog, he'll be writing it in Quill, uh, which is very, very unusual. So, uh, and car wax. And car wax, <laughs> indeed. Okay. Um, if you're a big fan of the show and you enjoy what we do, please like, subscribe, pen as a review, spread the gospel, especially at this time of year. Um, it, we would really be grateful. Um, but no, genuinely, it's been fantastic we will see you before christmas so i'll not say merry christmas just yet because it is a little bit early um but yes that is die hard i hope we did it justice for you listeners and christ when i listen back to it i hope we've done it justice for ourselves but we will see we will see um so i think we will say our goodbyes shall we team come on i got 50 bucks on those assholes It's Gally in Glasgow, signing out. No fucking shit, lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? <laughs> it's definitely in London. It's a Rolex. It's Patrick in London. Yeah, I see him. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, thank you very much for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewire Movie Podcast. <laughs>